This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. We live in a turbulent time with storms everywhere of every size and shape. And like every generation before us, we must learn the art of surviving them so that we can help each other endure. In his work, best-selling author and spiritual teacher Mark Nepo explores the art and practice of finding the strength to meet adversity by using the timeless teachings of the heart. In his life's work, as well as in his latest book, Surviving Storms, Mark articulates the heart's process of renewal and connection with insight and accuracy. In this episode, Mark is joined by CIIS professor and program chair for the MFA in Interdisciplinary Arts and Writing, Cindy Shear, for an empowering conversation on learning to overcome the storms of life. This episode was recorded during a live online event on November 30th, 2022. You can also watch it on the CIIS Public Programs YouTube channel. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, Mark. It's so nice to see you tonight. Oh, it's so great to have this chance. Oh, it's wonderful to see you too. And we should let folks know that we many moons ago we were we were in graduate school together at the University of Albany. So I'm so thankful for you to host this. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that. Actually, I was gonna I was gonna talk about that right in the beginning because um, I think it was really a, a factor for me in in reading the book. Um, you know, I was thinking as I was reading, especially because you used the your cancer as a touchstone, I was thinking, well, I, I had a sense of this person from a long time ago. First of all, it's amazing to think that anything happened 40 years ago. Like that's, a, <laughs> I mean, really, aren't we both much younger than that? I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about my reading process and how having a sense of you from another time, I could really imagine, you know, I was imagining you as you were using that example. And it made me think about that idea of imagination and kind of your hope for it when people are reading the book in that, you know, when you, you know, in essence, as you invite us to do heart work, as you so beautifully describe, kind of what is the role of imagining for you? Do you feel like that's a useful tool? To yeah, I think. And process? so so first, I mean, I think it's interesting to to note that the word imagine literally means to make real. So while we think of imagination as making things up, it's really, I think, how we engage our heart in such a way that we're a conduit between the inner world and the outer world. So, you know, my my hope, and, and I'm a very heart-centered, obviously, person and reader and seeker and writer, my, my hope with any of my books is to introduce the reader to their own gifts and their own wisdom. And I have found through the years that, um, not, I'm sure that won't surprise you, that the creative process is very much the introspective process. The only difference, I, I just happen to write it down, 
<laughs> yeah, for me, it's, it's just such an important piece in our in our work in the the MFA at CIAS. We really work from the the perspective that that writing, art making is a is an inquiry driven process as much as it's a production process. And so I really feel that a lot when I'm reading your work is that opportunity to both become aware of something, but to also keep inquiring into it, keep, you know, the opportunities that you offer in the book often to like keep learning um, on and on and on. Well, and this is this is one of the things that I, I feel uh, has been such a gift in, in my own inquiry. And it's the role of, of questions and, and list, mm-hmm. true listening. You know, in the, in the outer world of circumstance, well, questions have answers, like what time were we going to meet today and how were we going to turn all this uh, technology on? But in the inner world, the inner world of meaning, questions don't have answers. And I think that we ask questions there the way that we would open a door we'd like to walk through with someone or we op- or we swing questions like lanterns between us to help see a little bit further in the dark so questions when it comes to the inner world of meaning questions open relationships mm-hmm. not answers so you know I, I i a long time ago if someone if i'm talking to someone and they say to me get to the point i just stop talking mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, I think that's what that's well said. You know, when you when you're using the word question, it it makes me think about questions are, you know, an outcome of curiosity, and um, and I really felt that a lot when I was when I was reading the book. In part, I think maybe because I did have this little bit of sense of you, but I think there's also the invitation in the work for that opera, you know, for the opportunity to be curious. For me, one of the things that um, kind of going back to the the opening of the book again was I noticed that you use your cancer as a touchstone yeah. right away. And it made me think a lot about, you know, kind of who you were at that time and who you are now. And and I guess the, my question was, like, why was that important for you? Why was it important to draw from that pastime? as you're sort of looking, as you're standing in this present time well, yeah, um, one of, and wanting to bring this work forward. Sure. And I think, you know, in the very beginning, the first chapter is the old world is gone. And that mm-hmm. was the touchstone. You know, I think that many people, not just myself, but many people, I found when the pandemic be- came on, um, unexpectedly, I had these echoes come up from my journey, my cancer journey, which was so many decades ago. And this one, as you know, I mean, the the key thing was that when when I was diagnosed in my early 30s, um, I went obviously to a doctor one day who told me I had cancer. And of course, I was thrown upside down, inside out and said, you must have the wrong file. (laughs) It must be someone else. And but when I left that appointment, the door I had come through to keep that appointment was gone. Mm-hmm. The old world, there was no return to life before that moment. And I think why that came up for me as a touchstone, because I think that what that's what the pandemic has done for humanity globally. The old, as much as, and you know, as much as we'd like to return, as much as we'd like to deny it or be angry about it or feel it's unjust, 
the old world is gone and the only way forward is to love each other uh, th and through listening and through the questions and the curiosity and the story so that in our turn, it's our turn. The, the things that challenge us are different, but every generation has its turn at being here. And will we choose love over fear? Will we choose curiosity over sameness? Will we retreat or lean into each other? Yeah, I wondered if you had used the example in part. I mean, obviously it was incredibly pivotal, but also because it was something that so many could relate to. You know, it's the kind of thing that we all know is like, yeah, that that really changes you. And and you do really in the book, I think, use that opening as a way to segue into much larger questions about kind of where we're at. And, and I thought about that as well, like cancer feels tan like a tangible storm, but the the storms that we've been in for the last, you know, three or four years, um, they aren't, you know, I mean, some of us, many of us dealing with things we've never had to deal with before. And so I thought it was a, an interesting and a good approach to start with something where we could feel landed. Well, th um, thank you. And I, and I want, I want to say that, you know, so much of my writing process is discovery that, you know, I can't, I can't say to you that I, I, I consciously said, Oh, let's choose something relatable that will invite the reader. You know, I, I follow, and this is where I mean, this is a, it's also not just the creative process, but the introspective process is, I follow a feeling, a question, a, a turmoil, a confusion, a wonder, uh, a metaphor, you know, any, anything that strings my heart, I follow. And then the, if I'm authentic in that following, then I'm rewarded with an mm. insight or a pattern or a larger parallel. And I go, oh, Oh, and then I follow and see where that goes. You know, I don't plan like, oh, let's have it. Why? Let's do this. And then it'll cause that and it'll wind up there. I'm I, I'm not that smart. I just <laughs> uh, but it's real. That's that's where we get into the heart work. That's where we get into the heart work. And I think that, you know, it is the, the I mean, this is I remember being um, and this is also a reference in, in this cancer centered um moment was in 2001 when the towers came down shortly after that i was uh scheduled and i did i was leading a a, a wellness retreat that was for cancer patients survivors mm. loved ones and professional healing professionals all an integrated group it was in new hampshire and it was so fresh you know it was days after the towers went down and um and there was a, a brave, amazing woman in a wheelchair who'd been through her third surgery mm -hmm. and had a bandana around her head. And she said quietly, she said, you know, it's a terrible thing what just happened, but now we all belong to the same club. Mm -hmm. And being mm -hmm. a cancer survivor knew exactly what she meant. You know, the, the, the moments of crisis, the moments of illness, the difficult transition points only make acute the, the archetypal decision points in everyone li everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, we like to think, oh, well, that's different. That's not me. I, I thank God I don't have to deal with that. But it's really the same, the same journey that we're all on that's only made more acute by great love and great suffering. And so everyone who suffers, and we all suffer, everyone who suffers has a particular wisdom that the rest of us need. And we take turns. You know, one of, one of my short, very short poems is a, a guy. And, and the, my poems, as well as my books, if I'm authentic enough, then what comes out becomes my teacher. And then I have to stay in relationship to it. And so one of my small teachers is a small poem of mine that just goes like that. You know, that those who wake are the students. Those who stay awake are the teachers. How we take turns. Mm. Beautiful. I'd love to dive into that a little, a little bit of um, maybe a little bit in relationship to some of what you 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 say about grief, but also because I want to talk about the poetry. Some, you know, one of the things that I that I was really touched by was the idea of the various ways that you invite us into an experience of both. And at one point in the book, you you say, you say, you know, the question is often is the glass half empty or half full, but actually it's both. Right. <laughs> yes. And um, I'm thinking in particular about the poem that I'm going to ask you to read called Adrift, which is about, you know, can beauty and grief, yeah. um, you know, be, you know, can we hold them at the same time? And, um, so maybe maybe let's start there. Sure. Maybe have you read that poem and then let's talk a little bit about it and some of what arises from that. Sure. So this this poem uh, came about during a time of grief for me and and my wife Susan. There was a period of, of about oh a, a year, eighteen months, where we lost. I lost both my parents. She lost her mom. I lost a mentor and dear friend, and and we lost a dear our dear little dog child Mira at the time. So there was all this wave of grief, and um, and it was a summer day, and I was sitting on our deck in the back of our home, beautiful day, and I just fell off the edge into all of it. It you know my heart just opened up and boom, and and this is. And again, following, I was too exhausted to choose between the beauty of the day mm -hmm. and this well of grief I stepped into. Mm -hmm. And so I just followed the truth of, of that mixed feeling. And this is the poem that came, Adrift. Everything is beautiful, and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center under it all, what we have that no one can take away, and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad, and everything is beautiful. 
Thank you. I really, I really love hearing you. I love hearing you read it, and I love hearing the the ways that you allow for tensions. I'm interested in what you say about writing as a discovery for you, because I feel that in the book that there are so many paragraphs where there's a statement and there's a statement that follows, and it's not an elaboration; it's an addition, or it's a um, it's a it's a way of moving on between the between the the first statement and the second and so I have that real sense in the writing of, of that that's your way of using statement as question. It's a way of keeping us engaged in the same kind of inquiry that you're in as you're, well, you know, you've obviously thought about it and you're trying to name it for us, but still at the same time is the opportunity to engage it deeply for our, ourselves and to let it in essence arise as question at least that was my experience yeah thank you oh, thank you thank you i appreciate that and and so let, let me share two things here about that you know one like with the poem that's that poem is a good example you know so we get i you know the heart of that poem is that insight at the end that here what we have that no one can take away and all we've lost face each other and I'm adrift in this holy, this holiness that's punctured in and in, in feeling it. I did I didn't know that when I started writing this poem. That was the reward for following this. What how how what am I doing here? It's everything's sad and it's beautiful. And how do I hold that? Well, you don't hold it. You let it in. And then when I let it in, what happens? And so that was. The, the reward for staying with that feeling was glimpsing that insight. And mm -hmm. so that's the kind of thing like with, with, and for me, the, you know, my, the, the nonfiction books, you know, for me, it's all poetry. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it, it's just, these books are a larger canvas. That's all. And, and poetry for me is not words arranged in verse. It's the unexpected utterance of the soul. Mm -hmm however that appears and and so you don't even have to write it down uh, i again i happen to write it down because that's what i do and that's how i learn and that's how it keeps growing and so it is like you know very much when i feel something's true and i feel like i want to explore it it's like walking in a path in the woods and you're following the light mm -hmm. and you turn around a tree and you go oh my god there's a clearing which you couldn't see until you made the turn and oh, oh, look, oh, I had no idea. So that is how if I'm being and, and this is one of the hardest things to teach young writers. And, 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 you know, me, too, when we were in grad school together, because, right, we, you know, all of us, when we begin to have any vision is, oh, my God, like I have finally have a vision. Can I be true to it? I I aim. I want to write this. I want to, you know, do, and then, of course, we aim and we miss and we're so prematurely told that missing is failure mm -hmm. when it's just it's just discovery so you know the hardest thing it's like it to me it's as if that unknown world of meaning is waiting to see if we're serious mm -hmm. and then when it sees we're serious enough it says okay you have your plans you have your scheme, your outline. Well, now that I know you're serious, now I'm going to show you what this is really about. Hold on. Mm -hmm. And that that's the exciting launch. That's not missing. That's because the plans 
our kindling for the fire of aliveness that's waiting to take off if we're willing to be vulnerable and engage it. And so that leads to what to one other thing about, you know, I mean, I so respect all the genres and, you know, you we know people, you know, masters and, and you know, you could be a master poet or a master short story or a novelist. So I, I, <clears throat> I respect devoting one's life to one genre. For me, it's evolved differently. I have, in following that pulse of what is true, I have over the years been asked to use the genres as tools in a toolbox. And so my job in, 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 in my books is to have them all serve, hopefully, one seamless narrative that's seeking the truth. And so, you know, that might mean at one point I need to be a scholar and do his, to unfold history. It might mean one point I need to discover a myth or tell a story, or it might mean I need to suddenly move into poetry. And so I'm ready to, to turn at any point um, for whatever tool that moment of inquiry is requiring of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really feel that in the book, in the so many ways that you that you do thing. I think the poetry particularly because stood out for me because of the the idea of it almost felt kind of like an offering. It's like, okay, I've told you all these things, but here's a poem. Like I felt like you could put it in your pocket, you know, like, okay, I said all this stuff pages, but if you need something tangible, just take the poem and stick it in your pocket and carry it with you. <laughs> Well, one of the one of the model one of the only models for that uh, kind of writing goes back to Basho and, and the, the wonderful Japanese poet of 1600s. And Basho, in in addition to being you know really making haiku the the form it's known as, he also created a different form known as haibun, H A I B U N, which was a travel dialogue or journal interspersed with moments of heightened perception or haiku mm-hmm. and and one of his, his you know his classic is narrow road to the interior where in 1689 he he had asked an artist friend hey let's walk around the perimeter of the island of japan which was not easy and nor was it safe and they took a year and that is an amazing inner travelogue of his journey um and and i and it and it does it has this daily travelogue and then there it's punctuated at, at unexpected moments with a haiku here and there and you know one of the beautiful stories from that that journey which i so love um is that the in the first month that they were on the road he, he got to a they got to a place and they didn't know the way to the next town and there was a farmer so they stopped and asked the farmer and he started to explain and then he said you know what just take my horse my horse knows the way when you get to the town hit him on the rump and he'll come home so they take the horse he does lead them to the next town and just before basho sends him back he ties a gift to the empty saddle Mm. and that you know, that's one of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Centuries ago, this 
almost anonymous moment, they hold the seams of the universe. That that has always stayed with me. I think I I think of my books as the empty gift of I want to tie to the saddle. And I think that, you know, I invite everyone to think about what is the what's the gift you can tie to the empty saddle before you send the horse back on its way. I think that's so interesting. A few years ago, I did a number of years ago. Now I did an, uh, I curated an art exhibit called Art as Offering. Ah. And um, I was playing with the idea of um, I had been playing in my own work with the idea of art as gift. And um, and then I, I really started to think about it. And I thought, well, gifts are something like, you know, someone gives you a gift for your birthday or Christmas or whatever, and you kind of have to take it. <laughs> but um, an offering, it's just there, right? You can take it or not. And so I'm so interested in this idea. And I know from this book how interested you are in individual words, which is something I want to talk about before we, we get off this call. But um but, you know, I'm, I, I think that's so interesting because the way you talk about gift there feels so like offering to me. It's, you know, like, yeah, you could you could pick up that gift if you want to. Or in a way, that's what I meant about you could put it in your pocket or yeah. you could also. And this is kind of how I experienced the poetry was, um, you know, I, I was using the language of it was kind of a touchstone for me. But it's also a way to me of saying to whoever is reading, there is another way to be in this as well. Like quite literally, you can give it a new form. Look what I'm doing. You know, I am like called to give this a new form. And that's really beautiful for me that oh. you can be in the prose and then you have, oh, here's another way to step into this. And so again, going back to the idea of imagining, I wonder how it allows people to imagine, what could I do with this? What could I make of it myself? Well, and I think I think that it involves, and that's the real the real value to to me of imagination and creativity is it reminds us that this moment has never happened Mm -hmm. and we don't have to while there are tons of patterns and expectations and unspoken you know uh influences everywhere the fact is uh this has never happened before and Mm -hmm. so there we can do it any way we're called and that's where that real root of that word imagine to make real we can make it real whatever we need to do to make it real that's you know that's the poetry and i think one of the things i also i because i encourage you know people who are reading my books is to read it slowly take your time Mm -hmm. you know read a chapter live your life Read a chapter, live your life, so that there's a. Uh, uh, my hope is, my want is that it is a conversation between worlds, and, and your life is the thread between those worlds. Mm-hmm. I mean, segueing off that a little bit, I wanted to return to the idea of grief. A little bit because yeah. I thought you were I thought you were speaking to something really important when you were sharing the example about 9-11 and I was thinking about the time gap between creating this book and when it gets published and what's happened in the world and, and in the pandemic and you know I remember quite clearly the day a day I was out walking and um, 
listening to the news and the announcement came through that 3 million people had died in the pandemic, Mm. right? And just like trying to hold that number. And so I think there was a way in which in the thick of it, the day we had lockdown here in San Francisco, and I'll always remember the chronicle, the picture of the chronicle of like no one on the streets, like you could look into San Francisco, there was literally just space in the in downtown. And, um, and there's grief attached to all of that, you know, fear, obviously, in so many ways of what was happening in that time. But I think now that we're, you know, I was thinking about it today, we're kind of sideways to the pandemic. It's still there, but we're not in lockdown. Um, Not as many people are threatened every day with, you know, such severe health issue or dying, still very present. So many things have happened. January 6th has happened, guns, significant gun violence. And And so I find myself thinking about, you know, your invitation to really explore the grief of our time. But I wonder for you how your sense of that is evolving, kind of given as we're stepping into this next era. I'm not going to say post-pandemic because it's still there. I don't want to be in denial. I I do think that these larger patterns echo the individual journey. And this is the challenge from the beginning of time. You know, one of the and again, let me go back to, you, you know, my, see, I think, well, let, let me back up even one more step. I think every person that ever lives will be given the chance to be dropped into the depth of life. Mm-hmm. Now, often that can be triggered by a difficult experience, loss, you know, grief, uh, being broken open. It also can be triggered by wonder and joy, being loved for the first time, beauty. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, straight out suffering, but we will be given that opportunity. And that's when the deeper spiritual journey begins. And I think the challenge is for all of us is once opened, it's incumbent on us to stay open. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, whether it's through love, or whatever it might be. And this is the thing that, you know, so again, to go now to go back to my cancer journey, you know, I was in my early 30s. I hadn't been through very much, anything really difficult. And um, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thrown into this life-threatening journey. And, and so, you know, life became very raw, very immediate. You know, there was no time for pretense. Or what I, you know, things that I thought were requirements to live all fell away. So on the other side of that, of course, and this is archetypal. And I remember, you know, I remember this. There were two. Th- I, this is like a bookend, right? So, and I especially want to share this because of our time at Albany. I was, I, you know, I, I had this twice around with the cancer, and in the second time around, where I had a rib removed from my back, I I was on my way to start a January semester. I was on my I was on my way to my first creative writing class uh, at, at where, where we were at SUNY, Albany. Okay. And I had this appointment with a thoracic surgeon, which I thought was going to be okay. What what are the uh, what are we talking about here? Well, I never made it to that cl- class. He I thought I was going to leave and we'd do something the next week, the next day. And um, he said, no, I'm admitting you now. Wow. I said, what do you mean? 
He said, I mean now. And so I never got to meet those students. I was gone that entire semester. Oh. I didn't I didn't get back into the classroom to the following fall. Oh. And you know, I just and then on the other side of all of that, I mean the three years which was the heat of that journey, after I was blessed to still be here, everybody went back to work and I'm in my living room in my bathrobe going, What happened? Who am I? Mm-hmm. And how, and then there's the question, which relates exactly to your question. How do I keep the urgency of being alive and the preciousness of life there without the emergency? Mm -hmm. How do I keep things as tender and raw and truthful and vulnerable um, when mere silence is at stake? Mm-hmm. And this is where we are. Oh, so, you know, yeah, we're all, you know, we were all forced to stop. And in fact, the word Sabbath in the Jewish tradition literally means that the one day we do not turn one thing into another. And we were forced into a global Sabbath. We couldn't go from here to there. We couldn't scheme. We couldn't even dream. We had to except the miracle of what is. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's what all the traditions have always spoken about in their own ways since the beginning of time. And that's what was waiting on, you know, we're always challenged, the things that stop us, and then when we get ready to go again, where are we going? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the great kind of paradoxes, I'm blessed at this time in my life to literally go all over the world, and when I get to wherever I'm going, and I'm in those circles, I, my one job is to affirm for everyone that there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a privilege, I'm happy to do it. Now, of course, we've all traveled on the surface world of circumstance, many different, but once we ever get wherever we are, whether that's literally traveling or traveling through experience, we open the same eternal moment. And how do we live there? I was really taken by your statement in the book that, you know, coming out of the cancer, you realize there was no there, there, there was just, <laughs> just here. And if I can connect that to what you're, what I hear you saying is another thing that stood out for me was, you know, like, how do you, how do you come to know that at a given stage of your life, separate from, you know, the, the various storms that you have to deal with? But I was really touched when I was thinking about your book of that, you know, you were so young. I had things around that same age, you know, like my mother died when mm. I was 30. And, um, and so I know that's a really pivotal time in life for very difficult things to happen um, for various reasons, because you're sort of an adult, but you're, <laughs> <laughs> your, your life is still very much, you know, in development. And, and so I, I thought a lot about that. And I was thinking about that in relationship to like, maybe the bigger, maybe unknown reasons why you use that time in your life, because I thought, a lot of people in various stages of life in various ages are going to read this book and there's all this wisdom there, but you know, it's like finding wisdom. It's a whole journey. (laughs) It's an ongoing journey. And so 
how do you step into the kinds of things that you're talking about? Well, I think, you know, I think, and this is one of the humbling things is that wisdom I've learned after all these wisdom isn't a shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's just a resource. So it doesn't matter how much you've read, what you've learned, where you've studied, how many years, you know, you still, you know, wake up and trip and feel fear and face that, you know, none, none of being human goes away. We just have more experience and more resources. And so, and this is a very interesting difference, I think, historically in, in the pursuit of knowledge in the East and the West. In the West... It has often, whether it's it's you know unspoken or not, but often wisdom is the understanding of truth. In the East uh, and in indigenous traditions, wisdom is the experience of truth. Mm. And so as I've got, and and so to, to go to this is how do we live an embodied life? an embodied life and so because i believe deeply that it is the light it is through our humanity our humanity is the tuning fork of the sacred and so it's through our humanity that we experience oneness wholeness uh what how what our part what it is as a living part in a living whole and and that's the conversation. And so I think it, it starts with uh, our being, very, you know, Mother Teresa said, courage is doing small things with love. And this is where, you know, there is a, a chapter in the book about the purpose of goodness. And um, which so brings that down to me. So, very, you know, very quickly, I think I, I can go there and to sh- share that a little bit is that this really triggered, I was during the pandemic, I was reading Neil deGrasse Tyson, a wonderful art contemporary physicist. Um, and he had a book that came out for astrophysics for people in a hurry. It was very yeah, wonderful title. It was not watered down at all. It's a very potent, dense book. And, and as I really kind of was wanting to move through that, um, I was so struck because he shared very quickly he shared his take the the tribe of physicists and their take on how the universe began and how it came down to such a tiny tiny gesture that there was matter and antimatter matter was photons positive energy and hadrons were negative energy and when there was a billion and one photons and a billion hadrons just one more the universe came into being Mm. and that I kept thinking about how we are here by such a small gesture and then I was out doing errands and I think I was in line at the drugstore when all of a sudden it hit me um, this isn't the description of how the universe began this is a description of the ongoing creation of life Mm -hmm. and this is the purpose of goodness that to be the one gesture that outlasts all the others. And so we don't know if that, you know, if you see someone fall in the parking lot of a supermarket and you go help put their groceries and help them to their car and nobody else sees that you help that, 
that could be the one photon that kept life going that day. Mm-hmm. And we don't know whether uh, what we do will be it or not. I really like the way in the work that um, the idea of one one thing, um, you know, it, you, you talk about one kindness, one gesture in in different places. Um, and it connects me to the idea because as a poet, you really care about one word after another, you know, things. And I mean, there's a lot of starting in one that uh, that I think sort of arises in the book. But you know, I'm thinking about the this idea of truth and being truthful in in relationship to goodness. I'm thinking about in the section where you say the phrase is something like, so much depends on the courage to tell the truth and keep loving each other. Another reference to poetry, of course, because of um, you know, William Carlos Williams, so much depends upon a red yes. wheelbarrow <laughs> uh, glazed with rainwater. Um, and that idea that in one thing, in one moment, um, you know, so much, so much depends. I mean, he's giving us an image of a whole whole life that depends on, you know, he's telling us, you know, that. A whole life depends on what's well, ju- happening. Just, in- just like, you know, biologically, DNA and all of life is encoded in DNA. Well, spiritually, the entirety of life is encoded in a clear heart. Mm-hmm. And when we're clear, we can see mirrored in one clear heart the entirety of existence and possibility. And, and so that those one little moments, and we all we all see them. They're there all the time. We think they appear, but they're there all the time when we slow down to the pace of what is real, and then everything glows, and we're all stopped by this moment here and there in in the city or in nature or by the sea, and because those things are the seams of the universe. They hold all of life together. I just ran into one recently that I was uh, exploring and beginning to write about, and, and maybe you'd heard of it, but it was, um, I was listening and I heard this this uh, talk and it led me to this thing. It was about a moment in E.M. Forster's life. Mm-hmm. Now, E.M. Forster, who was the, you know, the British novelist, wrote Passage to India and many other things. Well, he was a conscientious objector in World War One. wound up being sent to Egypt because of that, where his job was to search for missing servicemen. And while he was there, because he was openly gay, he met uh, a young man, a tram driver in Egypt who was the love of his life. And they they didn't have very much time together and he had to go back to England and then they still corresponded. But then, uh, Muhammad El Adel, I think his name was, he uh, married. And and then he died a few years later from tuberculosis. And this is this one of those scenes of the universe. His widow, who knew of Muhammad and E.M. Forster's love, after he had died, she sent her wedding ring to E.M. Forster. Oh, wow. Again, just like Basho tying the empty gift to the saddle. 
just like that one gesture of helping someone in the supermarket. This gesture that hardly, and, and of course, I couldn't find the name of the widow. Mm-hmm. But that her gesture, I can almost hear the ring drop in the envelope before she sealed it and sent it to England. Mm-hmm. That, oh, you know, over a hundred years ago, was one of those gestures that holds all of life together. Mm-hmm. Well, various places I, I want to go here and trying to figure out the best way to do it. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about this poem that you that you wrote called um, I just blanked the moment of poetry. Yes. Would you mind reading that? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I think I know that one by heart, too. So let's see here. Yeah. The moment, and I call it the moment of poetry specifically because it's not about what we think of as poetry, but about those those moments. The moment of poetry. When the sweet ache of being alive lodged between who you are and who you will be is awakened befriend this moment its Mm -hmm. sweetness is what holds you its ache is what moves you on Mm. i mean it's a great response to what so much depends on (laughs) (laughs) um well, and this is, I mean, let me bring that back to the age we're living in and what we're talking about, because one of the things when we talked, you mentioned the insurrection and, you know, the times that we're in. And, and, and I think, and I spent a lot of time in the beginning of the book, as you know, trying to look at my guess at how did we over the last couple of hundred years arrive where we are in this perfect storm of isolation and fear and polarization. And one of the things you know, obviously us being in such a bubble from reality that I think so many people through the pandemic, through social media, through the insulation of their own convictions, you know, John Kabat-Zinn wonderfully said at one point, if you are too ensconced in your own beliefs, you will be a convict of your own beliefs, of your own mm-hmm. convictions. Mm-hmm. And and so, but anyway, I think that a great many people in our time have lost their direct connection to life. Mm-hmm. And this really hit me because, you know, you if you lose your direct connection to life, you lose your reverence for life. Mm-hmm. If you have that connection and you have a reverence for life, it's almost impossible to do harm. Mm -hmm. So now look at the insurrection and forget the politics. I mean, like many of us, I saw that live on TV and I was stunned, shocked to see this, to see barbaric violence while being so detached. Mm-hmm. Why, at the same time, people were taking pictures of themselves mm-hmm. as if they didn't know whether this was a video game or if this was real. Mm-hmm. And that really started me thinking about, you know, this direct restoring this direct connection of life and empowering people. To, you know, so like if I, you know, if I put my hand in water, I don't need you to tell me if it's wet. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I don't. 
We know what love is. We know what pain is. We know what fear is. We know what cruelty is. And so we can discuss and have many views of what those things mean. But we don't need anyone to, to, tell, to tell us what it means to be alive if we're vulnerable and honest. And the reward for that is restoring that direct connection of life. And so I feel it's so important to, especially with young people, I mean, isn't this all, all of so many of these, especially in the last year or so, these mass, these horrible mass shootings, these shooters are these drifting, unhinged young people, often white males, who... You know, I think I think violence at some point is a last desperate attempt to feel. Mm-hmm. And I and I think I've come to think this is a metaphor. I've come to think of, you know, these these uh, insane mass uh, these shooters as social aneurysms. Mm-hmm. You know, and an aneurysm we know biologically is when a, a weak cell in a body, when the body is under tremendous pressure, that cell explodes, mm-hmm. often leading to a stroke. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we can look at these people and we and say they're responsible for their actions, they're crazy, but we can't say it has nothing to do with us because mm-hmm. why does America have more weak cells exploding than any place on earth because we've created a pressurized system. So what we are responsible for is creating the pressurized system that's creating an epidemic of social aneurysms. Mm -hmm. I think about the three archetypal questions that you that you pose yeah. what can be repaired what can be reimagined what should be left dismantled and if i can tie that to something that comes later in the sure. book there, there are two things that stand out for me and i'm curious because when i read i think about not only each chapter and what it offers and the kind of inquiry that it raises but i find myself thinking about the relationship between the chapters and so I was sitting today with the chapter Here Abide and the one about admiration, which is about looking at the world with wonder. And so, you know, in relationship to the example that you've just given and those questions that really are kind of fundamental for us, what do we dismantle and how do we dismantle it and what do we reimagine? But how do we both abide which is another thing i love where you actually take us through the meanings of that word um and i love that you note how it arises from poland um um but then also to be able to you know move on and move forward with something while also gazing with wonder um to me it's such it's yeah, that's my question. How do we do those things? We do them. We can do them separately, but really it seems well, like the opportunity is to do them relationally. I think that I think that and and so and and we'll talk about I'm glad you brought that up. We'll talk about admiration as a practice in a minute. But I this goes back to the glass being both half full and half empty. You know, the wheel of life 
never stops turning. But we have all kinds of philosophies that come from when we stop the wheel. If we stop the wheel of life at the top, oh, let's transcend out of here. Everything's wonderful. Don't worry about all the bad stuff. It's everything's beautiful. But if we stop the wheel of life on the bottom turn, then we have nihilists. Then we have pragmatists who fear everything. We say, don't you see how life sucks? This is terrible. Why, what are you talking about, that things are wonderful, that you can admire anything? Yes, yes, and yes, it's the wheel of life never stops. It's all of those things. And I think that while, while the mind is a great tool and its chief gift is to sort, prioritize, and choose, the only things that matter, I can say, in my life have been what I've learned from by heart being forced or challenged to absorb and integrate. Mm -hmm. And that means letting all things in. I mean, if there's any teacher that's happened to me in the last 10, 15 years, it's the fact or the teaching that all things are true. Mm -hmm. All things aren't fair. All things aren't just, but all things are true. And it is by keeping my heart open that I start to understand how. And so uh, a great example of this for me was the great uh, poet Cecil Milos, who, who taught so many, was born in, in, in Poland, was, you know, was a teenager during the Holocaust, and then came to this country and spent most of his life teaching at Berkeley, as you know, um, won the Nobel Prize in 1980. But I consider him, what I always call him, is a mature romantic. And why? Because he grew up, in the midst of such horror and cruelty. So he always, he never flinched from seeing things as they are. And yet, like one of those miners in coal mines in South America who have the light fixed on their forehead, you know, he just, no matter what he looked at, even if he was looking at something horrible, he would shine a light on it. And it's always both. And, and we do that by telling the truth. And, and the practice of admiration is, is seeing the miracle that waits in everything before us. And when we do that, we honestly, we also reflect, uh, a light shines on where those qualities that we admire are dormant in us. Mm-hmm. So if I admire something about you, it gives me a way to see where that is waiting to come true in me. Mm-hmm. Well, and the willingness to do that, right? I mean, there is the sort of what we're talking about culturally is where is the willingness to do what is what's happened to the willingness to see in the other, you know, that how tied in are we to our own beliefs and our own, what we're afraid of or what we're concerned about. And 
because one of the things I notice in a lot in the writing and in a lot of the examples that you give, it seems like two things are really important. One is noticing, like I think in the Adrift poem, it's the noticing that you're able to do, you know, that leads you to an insight. So it's that willingness to like notice and then allow it to become something, whether that's reflection or something else. Am I Am I on track in any way? Yes, yes. Is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. And so I, I think that, you know, one of the things, and this actually comes from a different book of mine, More Together Than Alone, and and um, where, which was an explore, exploration of moments when we've worked well together throughout history and across time. And one of the things that it led me to imagine was imagining all the way back to the beginning uh, cave times, and imagine the first when the first two people realized they weren't alone. Imagine one person coming to the mouth of a cave and there's another person they see in there. They see each other, they go, whoa. And the person in the cave says, you're different, go away. And I, I imagine, because we were talking about imagining, that that was the beginning of the go away tribe. Mm -hmm. And throughout history, when that, when that fear metastasizes, so then, okay, I can't trust that you're gonna, gonna go away, so I need to put you where I can watch you. So then we have ghettos and reservations and detention centers. And then if the fear metastasizes enough, we have these horrible periods of genocide where I can't eat, trust that you'll stay where I put you, I'm gonna make you go away. But if we go all the way back to the mouth of that cave and the other person who saw them first, I imagine that that person said, you're different. Oh, thank God. Come teach me. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. Mm -hmm. And that when that has grown, when we realize we're more together than alone, that has led to the periods of enlightenment through all throughout time mm -hmm. and of course the catch is we always belong to both tribes and on any given yeah, I mean that, that theme you keep bringing up things are really a both and you know there's so much of just keep keeping returning to that and so I can I, I can tell you that I believe deeply I am of the come teach me tribe, but I could, we could get off this conversation and I could get scared for some reason and s switch tribes. And that's when we need each other to say, well, there's the admiration to mirror and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think, I think one of the words that, um, and I do love, I love the roots of words, not because I'm a word geek, but because words like nature erode over time. And so often I find myself when I go back as I can to an earlier, more whole definition, there's much more there that's useful, that's helpful. And so one of the great words uh, that has a great original meaning is the word honor. Right. It means to keep what is true in view. Mm, Isn't that a great word? Really? And I think... I think we need that more than ever to this is some of what we've been talking about. How do we keep what is true in view? How do we honor life itself by listening, by noticing, by questioning, by um, 
uh, by loving each other, through admiration, through hard work. To me, the respect for words does two things. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting in this book, and we haven't talked about it too much, but the way you the way you do connect to the other arts, philosophy, but particularly to history as a way of you know providing context for for what you're saying, and it's the same with the words. It's like you know, I don't know. You might be a little bit of a of a word geek, <laughs> but um, you know, I I really feel that too. That what you're doing is honoring the word, um, you know, by allowing us to see it in its fullness. Because we carry so much assumption about what words mean, and it's a way of, of asking us to step back if we really hold the root. I mean, that idea of radical, you know, of yes. taking us back to the root. It's a kind of way of being radical with with language to help us to, um, you know, to really think about how to hold it in its fullness. Like you're asking us to hold the fullness of possibility and experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, in fact, one of the things that I'm, I, I, as I've gone through all of my, my life's work, I'm, I'm intrigued with, I'm starting to look at doing a book uh, specifically on the origin of words. Nice. That would be great. No, no word geek intended. <laughs> I did want to wrap up with with one thing, if it's okay sure. with you. Um, I'm very interested in the way you talk about, first of all, I don't think we talked enough about the nature of storms. We came at storms yeah. in a lot of ways. So I really encourage everyone to to tap into that. And, and very interesting the way that you talk about storms as those things that we encounter or have to engage in things that we create. Um, and But I'm not going to go down that road because of, of time, but I just want to note it. The thing that I wanted to step into for a second is right at the very end where you talk about, you, you say, I can say that if there is an undertaking at the center of this book, it is to devote yourself to the gathering of the self of self-knowledge of how your heart works. And so I've been trying to nudge you of like, how do you do this? How do you do this? And you kind of just say it there. And then you, you also talk about writing as this process of, you know, digging the dirt from the hole, but it's really the hole that yes. is ultimately, you know, the, the thing that matters. And so I just wondered if there's, um, you know, anything else that you wanted to say about that? Sure. And then I just wanted you to end by reading the poem inside. Sure, everything. sure. Well, I think, I think again, you know, that I, I've discovered that this, this journey of introspection is not just the quest for self-knowledge. It is through authentic inner work we discover the network of life force that holds the universe together of which we're a part and so the reward you know we can be self-centered but that's different from when we do authentic inner work you know that's where you know one drop of water contains the entire ocean and one drop of pain, if met with compassion, will teach us about the history of pain. And one drop of love has all the love that has ever 
has ever been exchanged. And the only way to do that is to open our heart and look inside. Mm. The only way to do that. And um, so, yeah, let me share this poem, which has been a great teacher. Um, Let me find where I have it here. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, inside everything. Keep trying to hide, and in time, you become a wall. Keep trying to love, and in time, you become love. Our journey on earth is to stop hiding so we can become love. Everything else is a seduction and a distraction. Courage is staying true. Thank you, Mark. I think we should just let that live. (laughs) It's so nice to have this chance to talk with you. It's very sweet. I really appreciate it. Oh, me too, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.